They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yes, on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to Yahweh? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of Yahweh will be your rear guard. Then you will call and Yahweh will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yell of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. Yahweh will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath, and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, and Yahweh's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way, and not doing as you please, or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in Yahweh, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land, and to feast on the inheritance of your Father Jacob. The mouth of Yahweh has spoken. Okay, uh, I want to think about the question of poverty in this talk. And I want to start with the command, uh, the eighth commandment. Uh, if you can't think off the top of your head what the eighth commandment is, it's actually there on the outline for you. Do not steal. I want to ask you why is stealing wrong? Why is it? Uh, it's not that you know, we can give the parents the answer, can we? Because I said so. Right? God can give us that answer. Because I said so. That's it. Uh, but can we actually discern why God would say, do not steal? It's consistent through the Old, the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It's not just in uh, the Ten Commandments. And when we think about the Ten Commandments, we normally can give 
an explanation of why this is uh, there. And as we give that explanation, it actually helps us the commandment and the shape of the kind of life that God wants us to lead. And so uh, we've just thought about why do not murder, and we've seen that's got to do with being God's image bearer. And to be God's image bearer then has other ongoing consequences and wider ramifications for us in our thinking. Or we might think about why does God say, why no, no idols? And recognize that the reason for the prohibition on idols is that God is to be worshipped as he truly is. And that idols always distort the reality of who God is. Why does God say, do not commit adultery? Well, we thought about last night about the fact that uh, sex is for a committed lifetime relationship to be the bond between a husband and a wife. It creates children in which people, in which, in which children, and, and secures a marriage relationship and a family unit in which children can live. Uh, and so there's a reason behind the command, do not commit adultery. So what about do not steal? What's the reason behind the command do not steal? What do you think? Jesus summed up the commands as loving neighbor as himself, and so stealing it from your neighbor. Okay. Something God has given it to you. Okay. Yeah, He provides. So you're taking away something that God has provided. So that's what's happening. Covetousness. Okay. Well, so covetousness is the image of somebody else has. Yep. Yep. Okay. Any. What about a lack of trust in God? Uh, Not trusting that God would provide for you. Okay, yeah, so, so to steal is to, is to uh, not allow God to provide for you the way he's going to provide. Uh, of course, um, you know, we don't say that they're going to work. We don't say going out and earning money is a lack of trust in God. Yeah. Well, some, some Christians might, but we'd say that's, that's wrong thinking. In fact, 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, isn't it? It says if someone will not work, they will not eat. You know, you're actually meant to go and money to provide for yourself, but you don't need to steal in order to provide for yourself. Yeah, so any other thoughts about it? It does imply, doesn't it, that God actually gives, expects us to be able to own things. And I think it does go back to the idea again of being made in God's image. Uh, Remember in Genesis 1 where God says that uh, Adam and Eve, uh, the man and woman, to be in his image, and he says they're to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, so the task of being an image bearer uh, is, in the first place, Adam is to care for the garden and grow food and uh, feed, him, feed himself and feed his family. But the command to subdue the earth and fill it is, is not just about caring for the garden and uh, providing food for himself, it's actually an invitation, a command really, to develop culture, to grow and to build and to design and to invent. Uh, all of that is involved in subduing the earth and filling it. And if you're going to do that, you actually need to own things. You need to own some part of the land, of the earth, in order to grow 
crops or whatever it is you're going to do. If you're going to plough your field, you need to own a horse and a plough, or an ox and a plough. Uh, you might own that with someone who would say, or a tractor, yes, or a tractor, or, yep. Uh, now, there's different ways of organising ownership, of course. Um, you, know, you might own that sort of equipment together. Uh, somebody might own it, and you might be able to hire it off them. But somehow, it has to be owned, and it has to be available to other people to use. And if you, whatever it is you're going to be as you participate in developing human culture as an image bearer, whether you're going to be a musician or a builder or a, a, a raising a family or whatever it is you need to own things, if you're going to enjoy God's world, if you're going to be part of human society, then you need to be able to use material goods. And so God has actually made us to own things. So it shouldn't be any surprise to us that ownership actually matters to us. Uh, owning our own things matters, and you see that with kids, don't you? Um, yeah. <laughs> often owning other people's things matters to them as well. Uh, but I, I remember when uh, Liz and I were uh, first married, I guess we've been married a year or so, and we bought our first car. Uh, we'd only had it for a little while, it was parked on the street in Sydney, and uh, someone broke in and stole the radio from it. I remember how um, much that, that hurt and how, um, how distressing that was. It wasn't just the monetary value of replacing the radio, although when we were first married, there wasn't a lot of money to do that. But you know, in some ways, the things that you own are wrapped up with you. It's an invasion of you for someone to steal something that you own. And I think God has made us like that. Now, we've seen this weekend in each of the talks, that pattern of creation and distortion. And so we certainly distort ownership in all sorts of ways. Uh, we manage to turn it into everything. Uh, and probably, looking back to that car and the radio that stolen from it, there was probably too much of me in that car. Um, too much of my identity and my uh, feeling like I was becoming an adult was wrapped up in that in that car. Uh, it's very easy for ownership to become idolatry. Uh, and as what Paul says, greed is idolatry. Uh, certainly, we live in a society where ownership, which is a good thing, it's part of God's creative pattern, becomes distorted into a consumerism which just constantly wants more and more and more and more and doesn't know about contentment and satisfaction. But again, I want you to see it's not that the ownership in itself is a bad thing, but the way in which it's distorted in our society so that it becomes the only thing that is terrible, destructive really drive to own more and more and more and consume more and more and more. Of course, we're selfish. God's pattern for ownership is meant to be that we own in order to be generous to others, uh, but we so quickly turn into owning so that we can own it and keep it and not share it with others. But all those distortions don't make ownership wrong. Uh, they mean it needs to be redeemed. We need to do how to work out how to uh, love God properly with our possessions. But the Bible does make it clear that we're quite right to own things. 
One of the stories that incidentally makes that clear is the story of Ananias' fire. Remember in uh, Acts uh, chapter 5, uh, we told, and we'll look at some of this later on anyway, uh, the Christians are being very generous and selling what they own and sharing it with the poor in the, in the early church. And Ananias and Sapphira uh, sell some property and they keep some of it for themselves and give some of it to the, to the apostles to share. And uh, they're judged and, and they die for doing that. But it's very clear that it's not because they kept something for themselves that they're judged, it's because of their deceit, because of their hypocrisy, because they pretend that they're giving everything when they're not. And Peter actually says to them, did it not belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? See, it's the idea of ownership. Even though there's this, uh, what some people call it, kind of early communism happening in the the early church, that people are selling what they own and sharing it, Peter says there's still entirely the right for them to own what they have. So last talk we thought about the sanctity of life as a big principle. Another principle we can recognise here in the Bible is the right to private possession. Now, because we distort God's creation and God's creation pattern so quickly, and almost as soon as we say the right to private possession, what we turn that into is my right to possess my things. But if it is based on God's image, then it has a far wider and more challenging implication. Just as being made in God's image means that everybody has the right to life, it must also mean that being made in God's image means that everybody has the right to ownership. Not just a right to ownership, but everyone should be able to own what they need to care for themselves, to care for their families, to participate in society, to be part of human culture. And so just as the Christian vision of life and death is that the life of every person matters, then the Christian vision of Possessions is that people owning enough to survive and participate in society well uh, is part of, what, part of what is the way things should be. People's livelihood and their possessions matter. That's why the idea of uh, microfinancing that's often used in developing countries where uh, people will be given small loans that allows them to buy uh, some tools or some equipment, maybe buy uh, some carpentry tools or a sewing machine or a basic computer, by which they can start a business and begin to earn some money and then fairly quickly be able to pay off this debt that they've got. And that exactly reflects the Christian vision of possessions. Uh, that's what people need. They need the, the kind of tools and equipment in order to provide for themselves, but as soon as they start providing for themselves, they're actually not just providing for themselves and their family, they're actually part of a positive developing culture. They're able to be productive and engaged in their society. Now all of that, if that is what human life is meant to be like, then it makes Isaiah's accusation 
even worse. Because what Isaiah says, or what the Lord says to, our, to the people of Israel through Isaiah, is you seem to be so careful about your religious observance. So careful about keeping fast days. But this is what he says to them in verse 3. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So they take their fast day and it's really for their own indulgence. See, uh, verse 3, yet on your day of fasting, you do as you please. It might even be that doing as you please might even be you still do your business. That might be what he's talking about. You're still negotiating. You're still making deals. The focus of your fast day is not on God at all. Uh, it's kind of down tools, but that's in order for you to stand around in circles and Talk about how you're going to earn money tomorrow. And meantime, you oppress your worker. Again, it might actually be the day that the, the rich, although they probably aren't that rich in this in the excellent community, but those who have some more money and have businesses still make their workers work on the fast days. Perhaps they even say, well, we don't have to feed them, do we, because it's a fast day. But they can still work. Or it might be just more generally, they have this show of religious observance and piety, but in fact, they are um, they're repressing their workers. They don't pay their workers enough, they make them work long hours. They really do to the poor in their community what the what happened to their forefathers in Egypt. When they were in Egypt, mm -hmm. uh, the Egyptians kept stepping up the demands for how much any bricks they had to produce, and reducing uh, the, the, the straw they were providing, so they had to go out and find the straw themselves, they had to work harder and harder to get any uh, bricks made, and the kind of oppression of their slave masters was so terrible. And now, here are the people of Israel doing that to their fellow Israelites, mm -hmm. treating them exactly the same way. And so it's one of those passages in the Bible that shows us that in a pretty terrible way, religion and oppression can go together. The book of James talks about it as well. Uh, and I've got some references there to James. James 2, 1 to 9, 15 and 16, and James 5, 1 to 6. I wonder if you grab your Bible and turn to the book of James. And I'm just give you, going to give you a couple of minutes to read through those passages and uh, talk to... Somebody near you, but I've just been two or three. There's no need to get into, into bigger groups, it's only for a couple of minutes. Uh, what does James in this passage say about how the rich are behaving? And what does he say is wrong with what they're doing? So James 2, verses 1 to 9, and then 15 to 16, and James 5, 1 and 6. Does that make sense? I think there's a lot of it. So read. 
And then two very simple questions. What does James say about how the rich are behaving? And what's wrong with what they're doing? So have a read through and then turn to someone sitting near you or move to sit near someone. And just talk about that for a moment or two. Uh, while you're doing that, my voice makes a beautiful one. I'm just going to disappear for a moment. That's right. No, that's right. <laughs> <laughs>
Can you imagine the church giving better seating to rich and high status people than the poor? Yes. 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 <laughs> so we shouldn't read this in too shocked in one sense. Uh, but in another way, I mean, what, what, what's wrong with that? Is that so? I guess it's putting forward a, uh, some people can tend to have a basic assumption that the, <coughs> the wealthy and the rich and the learned are the smarter whereas that's confronted directly in verse 5 where actually often it's the poor who are rich in faith yes yeah. and God has chosen the poor uh, to be rich in faith to inherit the kingdom I think it ultimately ties back into that image of God question that uh, all the rich, being rich and poor is not what makes you human. It's not what gives you status. It's being an image bearer. And so all, um, even the poor, in fact, especially the poor, uh, have status, have equal status in God's eyes and in God's kingdom. Uh, but here is a church where that's being undermined. Yeah, what else is happening? Yes. Yeah. 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 If one of you says, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing, what good is it? But given what he's just said about the way in which the poor are richer treating the poor, mm. I don't think it's entirely hypothetical. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, it seems to me he is taking a real-life example of the way they're behaving. Mm. Uh, that they're giving this lip service <coughs> care of the poor to the brothers and sisters in need, but not actually providing them. And then over chapter 5. So they're not paying. The wages you fail to pay the workers are crying out against you. You've lived in luxury and self indulgence. And it sounds a lot like Old Testament prophetic accusation. Uh, now, whether this is happening, whether that is actually what's happening within the church that James addresses, or whether he has in view other rich people out there in society, I, I mean, I'm not sure. But at least there's, comp I mean, if if that's not exactly what's happening in the church that James is addressing, it's actually not very different to the way they, they are treating the poor anyway. There's a continuity between them, and maybe it is what's actually happening in, uh, in, James's, in the church that James is writing to, that they're holding back the wages of the workers. Uh, but wherever it's happening, it's a very clear condemnation of them. Now, compare that kind of behaviour and what's acute, what, what's talked about in Isaiah 58 with the Christian vision. 
God's vision of everyone being unique there, being able to own, being able to participate in, in work, being able to care for themselves and provide for their family uh, and, and be part of a productive culture. Uh, and it makes it even more shocking, shocking, especially when both in Isaiah and in James there's this overlay of religious piety. Uh, and religion can be deceptive to it for us. Piety and going to church can be deceptive on this. That we go to church and we feel like, oh, we're okay. We're the good people. We're the righteous and respectable people. I mean, you think of a situation like uh, southern states of the United States during this era of slavery, when all the slave owners were Christians. Many of them were Presbyterians. Many of them were committed, respectable Presbyterians, elders of the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., who were making money out of terrible conditions and awful abuse. Not only the principle that they owned people as slaves, but the hard work that was expected, the terribly difficult work with no pay or freedom, limited medical care, abusive punishment, separation of families, and they were allowing this to go on in people that they owned, and yet they go to church and sing hymns and bow their heads in prayer and appear to be honourable, religious, pious people. And that's the kind of thing that Isaiah is talking about. And so, in uh, if you go back to Isaiah 58, God sets out what he expects to be different. Verse 6, Is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and break every yoke, is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, your own fellow brothers and sisters, your fellow Israelites. God says, what I want from my people is not abuse of the poor, not selfishness and oppression, but freeing the oppressed and sharing with the hungry. The test of piety, the test of real faith, the test of obedience is generosity. And that was meant to be the pattern of Israel. Israel was meant to be a nation that showed what God's way of living was like. Where the poor were protected and cared for. And uh, there's quite a bit in the Old Testament law, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, setting out how the poor should be cared for and protected. But instead, what they received was oppression. And in Isaiah 58, God is calling them back to live his way. And what we see as we go into the New Testament is that the gospel does and should make a difference today. As I was saying uh, a few times this week, this weekend, Jesus forms a new community within Israel from his followers who are meant to be very different from Israel. Different because they follow Jesus, but also 
different in the way they live. They really to live out what Israel was meant to be, but always failed to be. Uh, so have a look uh, at a couple of passages in Acts. Acts chapter 2. The end of Acts chapter 2, so this is the day of Pentecost, the very beginning of the Christian church in its form that it's going to have after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. The believers were together, had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had them. The prophets have condemned Israel for the way they treat the poor and the oppressed, but now the new forming Christian church is going to be the community that cares for the poor. Or over in chapter 4, verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's power was so powerfully at work in all of them that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet to be distributed to anyone who had need. Of course, that leads into the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So here's the pattern that God has been generous to them, and now they will be generous to one another and care for one another. Are they reflecting in their life as a church the sort of pattern that should have been there in the Old Testament, that should have been there in the Old Testament Israel? And so after the story of Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, we get to chapter 6, there's a dispute amongst the Hebrew-speaking widows and the Greek-speaking widows. Uh, the concern that the Greek-speaking widows are not being provided for. And the apostles don't say, oh, who cares, that's not our business. They say, that's not our task as apostles, but it matters. So find godly, wise men and choose them, and they will look after the distribution of goods to the Widows. Of course, in the ancient world, to be a widow was, was in a particularly vulnerable situation uh, because economic life was really required a man to be involved in the workforce and to be a widow was to be exposed. Uh, you know, there's no social security, there's no insurance and those sort of things. So widows and orphans are particularly those uh, who are in desperate circumstances and they need to be cared for. And so through the gospel, through the work of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, the Lord is creating a generous community. And that's the pattern in the epistles. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, Let the one who is stealing, been stealing, steal no longer, but instead work with his hands so that he might have something to share with those who are in there. God has been generous to us. He's cared for us. He's made us rich by his own poverty. And we are restored to be like Jesus, to love one another. And we should be generous. And that should be a natural part of church life. When I was in Cowra, uh, there was one lady in our church who was a widow, and uh, certainly not someone who was well off. Uh, she had car troubles. 
and the mechanic told her the thing that nobody who owns a car ever wants to hear, uh, this car's going to need a new engine. Well, there's no way that she could afford to have a new engine put in her car, and she was going to be stuck. Uh, uh, she'd either have to walk or catch the limited bus service that was in Cowra. Um, and one of the great things that happened uh, was a few people at church uh, put money together and uh, gave it to me and asked me to pass it on to her as an anonymous uh, gift. And, and that's exactly the sort of thing that church life should be about. Uh, it's not just that, that, that her car made a new engine. I mean, when we got broken into and we lost the radio, we needed a new radio car. We didn't need a new car. But you know, we were able to provide that for ourselves. We heard it as we were. But she was in a situation where she couldn't do that. And so the right thing for her Christian brothers to do is to provide for her. It should be the natural response in church life, although it's not really the natural response, is it? It's the spiritual response. It's the life that's led by the Spirit. But it is a tough challenge to actually be like that with one another. And then we should expect that our generosity should flow out to the world. It doesn't end with our church community. Because that is the pattern of the Bible. That God's people are blessed in order to bless others. We receive God's light in order to shine God's light. We receive the gospel in order to speak the gospel. We receive the blessing of God's generosity to us. And we echo that to each other, and it should ripple out into the wider community. Uh, I was mentioning in the last talk about the fact that the early church was really the place that began hospitals. Um, hospitals that were for anybody, especially for the poor. Uh, and that began as a way of looking after the sick within the Christian community. Very quickly, it expanded to include others who weren't Christians who needed that care. And so, as we think about living as God's people in society, one of the issues that we do need to think about is the question of poverty. So let me say a few practical things about, about that. Uh, we need to Look at our own businesses and our own buying patterns and our own investments and ask how do they affect them? Uh, those condemnations of Isaiah 58 about oppressing workers, those warnings in James, uh, we do need to take them seriously. Now, that, this is not a very this is not an easy area to think about. I, I absolutely acknowledge it's very complex. Especially when you get to the point, not just of how you run your business, but what kind of, you know, what is your superannuation invested in, and all those kind of questions. Uh, and now the solutions aren't easy. Uh, it's very, there's a risk of giving kind of glib, simplistic answers. Uh, but I'd at least say that Christians need to think about how we use our money, what sort of investments we have, uh, and be as sure as we can that we're not investing in things that actually do harm to people, especially things, you know, businesses that are really built on the oppression of the poor. But also positively, that the wealth that we do have, and almost all of us in Australia have reasonable wealth, I and mean, if you have superannuation, 
uh, then you know, you've got some wealth there. Think about how that, how that is used in a way that actually blesses other people. It's easier, I think, to think about opportunities in our more immediate vicinity. To look and to pray for opportunities to serve the need in our own circle. I think one of our problems is we often don't look for opportunities. To think about what the practical support is that we can give to people. Not just money, in fact, often giving people money, and there are times certainly giving people money, but that's often not the most useful thing we can do. If the whole point of ownership is to help people to be able to provide for themselves, and to be active, useful participants in society. Then it's think about how do we support people to do that? It might be a single mum that you know, and you can say, look, why don't I invite the kids one morning a week to let you go to TAFE so you can get some qualifications so that you can get a job? And that's a long-term useful investment. So I think how do we give practical support to people around us so they can participate in the workforce, earn the money that they need? I think as a church, and um, here I say something, I've got no idea what the answer is at Corporate Church, so I kind of speak freely in some ways, to ask the question, how does mercy ministry work in your church? How do you care for people? How do you recognise where the needs are and coordinate the resources that are in the church in order to help those who have need? Uh, one of the old Reformed church and Presbyterian patterns has been to have deacons, and the claim would be that's modeled on Act 6, whether that is really where the, the, the act starts, I won't go to that debate. But the deacons had the task of mercy ministry, of care ministry, of knowing who was struggling in the church and providing for them, using the church's resources to do that. Now, I don't think we need to talk necessarily about having deacons and things like that today, but the same kind of concern of having that sort of ministry structure which helps to coordinate our care for those who are struggling. And beyond the local church, to think about the local community, to ask what are the needs in our community that we can realistically try and meet. Uh, theologically conservative churches in Australia don't seem to be very good at this. Uh, and I mean, I don't think I've got great answers. It's something that I am aware we need to think more about. But when I was in the States a few years ago, one of the things that struck me is the difference between what I see in theologically conservative Australian churches and churches which have similar theological positions in the US. In the US, there are those churches in, in uh, being involved in local ministries that help those who are poor. Now, we have to be, in the US, that's often a more pressing issue because of their lack of social security. Uh, so they're in a different circumstance. But still, you know, they're good at looking at the outreach programs to poor parts of the city, to setting up food programs, to running tutoring for kids at risk and help them maintain their high school education and get to college and be more usefully engaged in society. Uh, Port Macquarie, of course, has an extensive elderly population. And uh, while some of them may be very well off, I'm sure that there are poor elderly, lonely elderly. And I would have thought that's one area where uh, a church in Port Macquarie could be, uh, could be thinking. So it's not that I've got lots of answers of what, 
what we in general need to do, or certainly not any great idea of what you need to do, but it seems to me as Christian communities, as churches, that's what we need to do. We need to say, we, we look after one another as far as we can. And we are looking for ways in which we look after those around us. And even to think globally. Now, the thought of doing something about global poverty seems overwhelmingly difficult often. So let me first of all tell you there's actually really good news about global poverty at present. Since 1990, the numbers of poor uh, around the world, the desperate poor, the under a dollar a day people, has been halved since 1990. Now that's mainly through the economic development of China and even more India and parts of Asia, other parts of Asia as well. But it's helpful to just to recognise that the issue of global poverty is not one in which there's no hope of making any progress at all. Though, of course, the debates are the issues are still pressing. And there is a debate, there are lots of debates about what actually works best in helping poverty, both at a national and global level. And that's an economic question. It's not a directly biblical question. Uh, and so I'm not claiming to be an expert at all in what policies we should adopt. I'm just saying that we need to think about it as a Christian. But to think about some of the practical things we can do more widely on a global level, child sponsorship, uh, the kind of programs that Tier Fund has, uh, where they tie the gospel and economic development together, and uh, we in countries that are well off can support what's happening in developing nations. Uh, I think we should think more about how we as individual churches connect, can connect with churches in developing countries. Uh, and be praying for perhaps particular congregations uh, in developing countries. But it's also worth remembering that a lot of Aboriginal communities in Australia uh, really have the same kind of economic status and the same kind of economic needs. And to be making connections with churches in Aboriginal communities and seeing how we can support and help them, and not just assuming that we know how, but actually asking them how we can help. Uh, to think about fair trade. Yeah. Had enough experience in this area to know it's easy to start a debate in Christian circles about whether fair trade is a good idea or not. Uh, my personal view is, although I'm happy to be I'm not an expert on economics, uh, is that it is worth being concerned about buying fair trade coffee and fair trade chocolate. Um, and then over time, if producers recognise that a lot of people in wealthy countries like Australia, want to be sure that they're buying products that actually do good to the countries from which they come, uh, they'll get better at doing that. Now, there are some churches where every week, every sermon talks about poverty. And I don't think that's the right place. I don't think that's the, I don't think that's the heart of the Christian mission. But I think sometimes we go the other way and we just never mention it at all. Uh, and we have a God who cares for the poor. And who calls us to care for the poor. Who's been generous to us, and our generosity should flow out to our brothers and sisters and to the world. Have a pray, and then I'll see if there's comments or questions. Father, uh, we thank you for the riches you give us, uh, for the physical riches, the opportunity we have to enjoy this lovely place and this weekend, and the kind of uh, economic 
privilege we have in, in being the kind of people who've got cars who can drive here and can pay camp fees. There's so much that we enjoy. And we recognise it all comes from your hand. We thank you for the blessings that we have, particularly in the Lord Jesus and through the Spirit, that you have been generous to us and poured out all sorts of spiritual blessings. We'd ask that your generosity to us might echo in our generosity to others. Help us to be concerned for brothers and sisters whose lives are difficult. Uh, and help us to be quick to care for them. Please keep us from being like those people described in James who say, be warm and well fed, I'll pray for you. But don't do anything. Help us to be people of active love. And we pray that our love for one another uh, might make it clear to the world around us uh, that you are king and that the kingdom is coming and that our blessing from you might flow out to give blessing to others as well. Help us to be wise and creative as we do that. Please help help us to not be so consumed by our, by our own immediate concerns and needs and the busyness of day-to-day life that we don't lift our eyes and look around and see uh, who around us needs help and how we can help. And, uh, Father, as we finish this weekend and head back to our homes and to daily life. We pray that you use the things that we've seen in your word to keep our eyes open to how we participate as your people in a society which you have established and you love as creator and preserver and redeemer and in which we can be salt and light. We pray that you help us together. And Lord, I pray especially for Presbyterian Church in Port Macquarie. Help this congregation, this this church, to be uh, salt and light in that town. That what they say and what they do, the way they treat one another, the way they live their own lives, uh, might constantly uh, point people to Jesus. They might do their good works in such a way that people give glory to God. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. People, um, non-Christians, when they do say, we talk about all poverty, and they say, well, there is a God, why is it really bad that people starve and step up and say, well, you know, it's got to do with sin or well. But they don't understand that. So, it's almost a hard one to It is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think the problem of evil and suffering in all its forms, is the most difficult question for Christians to answer. Um, did Jesus rise from the dead? Sure, I can, I can talk to someone about the evidence for that, and they may not accept it, and they may not you know, see it from my point of view, but I feel like it's pretty straightforward to talk about it. Uh, but the problem of suffering and evil is, a, is, is the most difficult question there is, I think. Uh, because there is a real discrepancy between God's character and the world in which we live. God is revealed in Scripture as good and loving, as loving life and hating death, and yet we live in a world where there is need and poverty and suffering. And ultimately there's no need 
answer to that? How, how and why does God allow that? Well, we can start to give an answer. We can talk about sin and the consequences of sin. You can't just point the finger at God and say, this is your fault, we have to recognise that we are part of the problem. Yeah, let's say, all these babies, all these children. Yeah. So, and we can, we can start to give partial answers, but when I'm, when I'm talking to someone and they, and, and they seriously want to talk about this question, they really want to um, think it through, I'll almost always say, look, I, there are some answers, and I can give you some sort of answer. There's some things we can say, but ultimately we're going to reach a point where we just don't know the answer. And if you're happy to proceed, if you're happy for us to have the discussion, recognising that we're going to reach a point where we've got to say, I'm not God. God is God. And I can't understand why he does things the way he does them. And I don't ultimately have the right to call him to give an account to me. I mean, that's the lesson of Job words, that um, the answer is, don't ask the question, Job. You don't, well, you can answer it. You can ask the question, but... There's not finally an answer that's going to be given to you. The answer to Job is God is God. Um, if you're willing to accept that, then we can have a useful discussion. And I think most people don't necessarily want to have a useful discussion. They just want to use it as, well, God really yes. is what you say. Yes. And they dismiss it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's an illustration of the fact that Christianity is a, is a worldview. It's a whole way of looking at the world. And Within a worldview, it makes a lot of sense. But if you if you don't if you don't take on the assumptions about who God is, then uh, the kind of answers we've got are actually not going to make sense. So I guess in one way, what's that? You know, we don't therefore get too distressed by the fact that our friends aren't very convinced by the answers we give. We try and give as good an answer as we can, but recognise in the end there's a long spiritual journey to come to the point of recognising. God is truly God, but also recognising that God has done something about what is evil and terrible in our world through Jesus' death and resurrection and the kingdom is coming. And so our answer, God's answer to evil is not a philosophical answer about how good God can, can overcome evil. God's answer is much better than that. It's what the true living God has and is doing to make the world right. That's God's answer to the problem of evil and suffering. So one of the, what I want to say to the person is, I can't give you the philosophical answer, but I can give you an answer that actually is going to make a difference in your life. Do you want to be part of the solution? Because there is a solution. God's already doing it. Yeah, so I, I ultimately want to talk to you about Jesus and, and his life, death, resurrection, uh, what it means to be part of God's kingdom. Yeah, so but I, it's a really big answer, a really big question and you know, there's a great deal of um, ink that's been spilled on, on writing books and books and books about the whole suffering, problem of suffering and evil. That helpful biblical framework for a number of topics. Uh, probably developing a bit more on what you've just been saying there. So uh, take marriage, for example. As we're talking to people about marriage, we have our biblical framework. Uh, how do we actually be salt and light with people who don't have that framework? Like we were talking about the other night. Yeah. Uh, can you give us some tips or some insights? I find thinking about both created, the idea of creation and preservation and redemption and keeping them a bit 
separate in my mind is that that is, if my next door neighbours, um, I mean, just want to talk about marriage, okay, we can talk about it, but you know, well, actually, the couple who are next to me, who live next to me, who are couple who live next to us are married and are Christians, so this is not a good example. But if my next door neighbours aren't Christians and their marriage is in trouble, for instance, and there's something I can do to help them in their marriage, uh, you know, just chatting and advice and support, or you know, saying, look, I know I'm a good counsellor or whatever, whatever it might be. I mean, that's worth doing because it's part of preserving what is good. And so it's worth doing. Um, but I don't imagine that's redemption and bringing the kingdom. But it's still valuable and worth doing. 